According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we're going to be in Matthew 28, uh, approaching the end of Matthew 28 and getting ready to move into Luke 24. As we've said before, the harmony of the Gospels that we uh, are using and have been adapting for the last 464 classes um, combines these two scripture passages into the same event and uh, takes Luke 24 verses 44 through 49 and inserts it within Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20 and places both of them under the heading episode 12, the Great Commission. Um, I'm going to leave it leave those verses under this heading, but outline them separately because uh, I believe in Luke 24, the setting for that is in Jerusalem. He tells the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they are clothed with power from on high. And he doesn't say return to Jerusalem and remain there until you're clothed with power on high. He says remain. And and I I think, anyway, it's, it's clear to me in the text that they are in Jerusalem when he says that. And uh, the setting for Matthew 28 is not Jerusalem. The setting for Matthew 28 is a mountain in Galilee. And so I prefer to break them out, And uh, in which case uh, we would title this The Great Commission. And then if we were to create a 13th episode for the Luke 24 passage, uh, we would have to give it a different title. And uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave it as uh, part of episode 12, and we'll leave episode 13, The Ascension, which will uh, which will conclude this study. So, um, unless I change my mind, <laughs> if I change my mind, then we'll we'll fix our uh, harmony of the gospels and uh, reprint that, and then uh, make that episode thirteen. But really, there's no reason to uh, to do that. We'll just make it point four in this outline and call it good. All right. Well, we're still in for this morning anyway, dealing with the commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't forget the lo. In many respects, lo is imperative, all right? And uh, so if we say that uh, make disciples is the only imperative of the passage, technically we could pick a nit and uh, be, become nitpickers and say, well, the low is an imperative. Behold, see this is an imperative. Um, well, maybe we need to uh, reevaluate what the, uh, the uh, great imperative actually is. All right, low I am with you always, even to the end of this age. Never stop looking at Jesus Christ. He is with you. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our minds on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Since then we have been raised up with Christ, let us keep seeking the things above. So in many respects, that low, we just zip on through it. We usually ignore it. Usually when, when we cite the Great Commission, we chop it off with, um, well, do we get that far? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do we stop there? How about teaching them to observe all that I commanded you? That's, that's a huge part of the Great Commission. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That imperative to behold Christ is, uh, is, a, is a closing encouragement, but I think it's integral to the uh, Great Commission. That if you, are, if you are intimate with the Lord, occupied with Christ, then you have a greater tendency to pursue the Great Commission. 
If you're not occupied with Christ, if you're not beholding Him, then other things take priority, and you're not so uh, so quick to uh, become a disciple maker. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll discuss that as well. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time together. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time together this morning. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our time of teaching. We ask that the Word of God would not be impaired or limited in any way. Uh, I'm presently, and I freely confess, under the influence of antihistamines. Uh, My head's a little little woozy, but uh, Father, uh, we sacrifice a little bit of that in order to have a clear speaking voice, not have the congestion and so forth. So Father, here we are. We're in your hands. Use it as you choose to do so. Don't let uh, the message be impaired in any way, not on the part of speaker uh, limitations or hearer limitations. Overcome all of that, Father, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we are ready for main point three, the imperative. Main point one, we set the context. I like to do that in main point one and almost all of these outlines. Establish the context, uh, both in... uh, geography and chronology. Uh, How does this episode fit into uh, previous episodes and so forth in the life of Christ? So a mountain in Galilee is the location for this event. Has some subpoints there. We'll skip through. Point two, Jesus drew near to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. Jesus drew near to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. Uh, the details for their wavering were given in, in those subpoints under point one. But the idea here on this episode that they were here to receive this commission and it was causing second thoughts. And uh, the Lord drew near to resolve those second thoughts and assured them with the teaching they needed, the message they needed, the authority they needed in, to stop the wavering and, and proceed. The, uh, the answer anytime we waver is to uh, draw nearer to Christ and proceed. And uh, the provision that's made there uh, allows the disciples to do so, allows us to do so when, uh, when we ourselves find ourselves in a wavering circumstance. The disciple-maker imperative exists as a reflection of Jesus Christ by present authority. I'm not going to go back and reteach all this today, but this is what we dealt with last week and a little bit the week before, but mostly last week, the by-present reality of how we operate. We are by-present. We're not omnipresent. We are by-present in the sense that you and I have two natures. We have a new nature in Christ. We have a spiritual reality, and that operates in the heavenly places in Christ. It's not just a positional reality. It is a spiritual reality that that has an experiential basis. All right? and I understand we, we try to distinguish between positional and experiential, that's critical, but don't confuse the fact that our positional reality in Christ is also experiential, at the Father's right hand, at Christ's right hand. That's where our attention is supposed to be focused, right? Colossians chapter 2. That's where our treasures are supposed to be laid up, laying up our treasures in heaven where thieves and moths do not, you know, where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break into steel. We're supposed to be purchasing from Jesus Christ, eye salve to anoint our eyes and clothing to cover our nakedness. There is um, what the the Laodicea exhortations about there in Revelation chapter 3. We engage in a heavenly economy. 
what has been bound in earth shall be uh, in heaven, or what we bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, I'm trying to say. There's this bi-locational reality of how we operate. And yes, our, our physical bodies are here on Cross Park Drive in this uh, you know, new facility. It's been three years already. When are we calling this the new facility? I don't know. But um, here we are. Our bodies are here in the new building. But spiritually, where are we? We are in Christ. We have confidence to enter within the veil. We have confidence to enter within the veil by the new and living way that is his flesh. We draw near. We have the high priest. All right? That's why the book of Hebrews is on the short list. I want to teach that. That that reality for where we are in Christ, in the Holy of Holies. All right. By the way, it's on the short list for all three of the hours. It says on the short list, Hebrews could be the Wednesday morning study. Hebrews could be the 11 o'clock hour on Sundays where we're doing it chapter by chapter. Hebrews could be the verse by verse study whereby we take the next six years to teach. Right. So anyway, and it may lose out on all three short lists. I don't know. We'll see. But it's, it is it is the only book that right now that is on the all three uh, short list possibilities. So, all right. The church stewardship operates via bi-present reality because his authority is bi-present. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's verse 18. And that is key. Don't separate that out from the Great Commission. Uh, people that separate it out when they're just trying to recite the imperative and they start with go therefore. And they've lost the sense of the therefore. The therefore is the basis for their going. The therefore is the basis for their making disciples. And the basis is all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. So, and then also, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, gets ignored. It's critical that we don't because the disciple maker imperative exists for the duration of this age. It is a church age imperative. It is only for the bride of Christ. The disciple maker imperative is only for the bride of Christ, the royal family of God, the church age. Now, after we are gone, of course, will they make disciples? Will, uh, will there be disciples in the tribulation? Will there be disciples in the millennium? What is the disciple-maker imperative for Israel when their stewardship is restored? They will have, the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists will have a missionary ministry that will be you know, compatible with what we consider the disciple-maker imperative. They're going to give the gospel to unbelievers, and they're going to take new believers and get them grounded in doctrine. So we can say that they're going to operate under the pattern that the Great Commission entails. But technically speaking, and to be strict about this, they are not operating under the disciple-maker imperative. Because the low I am with you always doesn't apply to them. The 144,000 are going to be operating in the absence of Jesus Christ. They're going to be enduring to the end so that he does appear. (laughs) And when he comes, then the king will be with them. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So tribulational evangelists, the 144,000, anybody else, uh, the two witnesses of Revelation 11, anybody else that's saved after the church age, they are not operating under the Great Commission. Their activity will be similar. Their activity will follow that pattern but they are not under the Great Commission. Does that make sense? It's like we, we're not under the Ten Commandments, but our church age morality is very compatible with the Ten Commandments. 
you know, everything except Sabbath day and even keeping the Sabbath day, we can multiply that times seven and apply that every day. All right. So we're not under the Ten Commandments, but our church age ethics and morals are compatible with that. Does that make sense? So likewise, after the church is complete, the disciple maker imperative will no longer be a mandate upon believers as it is for us today. It's only for the church is what I'm trying to say. Like communion, it's only for the church. Point three then, the imperative. In the outline, main point three, the imperative. We understand sub-point A, the imperative is not go. The imperative is not go. It's in an emphatic position in most English translations. Go, therefore. And it comes up front as go, therefore. And it gets stressed as go. And uh, in that sense, uh, it becomes very uh, easy to preach it. It becomes very easy a, on a sermonic basis to preach it. Uh, for uh, the style of ministry that is uh, sermonic type preaching, um, go gets a lot of press. <laughs> okay, it's easy to preach the go, but go is not the imperative. Uh, go is actually the aorist participle. Aorist participle of poruo, p o r e u o, uh, or poruomai in uh, in the middle voice, but the aorist participle of poruo. 4198 is the strongest concordance, 153 uses in the New Testament, and we don't have to look at all of them, <laughs> all right? However, it is fairly simple to find all of the aorist participles of poor you in the New Testament and take a look at those. That's not too hard to do. And so I listed them on the screen, and many, actually, I just listed the ones in Matthew, all right? I listed the ones in Matthew, and uh, there's lots of them. Matthew 2.8, Matthew 9.13, Matthew 11.4, Matthew 17, 27.18.12, 21.6, 22.15, 25.16, 26.14, 27.66, 28.19. That's a lot of uses, okay? And we're going to see in those uses, we'll take some time to do that this morning, that it should hopefully place the go, the Great Commission go, in its rightful context, whereby we're not going to start preaching a whole slew of go messages based on Matthew 2.8, for example. We're not going to preach a whole slew of go messages based on Matthew 9.13 or any of these other examples, all right? I recognize it's common. I recognize missionaries love to preach it. It's good to, to uh, you know, encourage people thinking about the mission field that, hey, maybe God's calling you to go and so forth. Um, God may be calling you to go, uh, but not necessarily as a response to the imperative of Matthew 28, because it's not an imperative in Matthew 28. So, um, let me just show you a little bit how this is done, if in fact, I should have started off, had this up and running. Well, that's loading. Let's turn back to chapter 2. Like I say, I, I went ahead, I thought it would be simple enough to just grab the Matthew uses, the Matthean uses, as he is the uh, same author, obviously, of the chapter 28 application here. Matthew 2.8. Some of it, too, is idiomatic on the part of native Hebrew speakers uh, in the sense that there's, a, there's a, an aspect of the Hebrew language that likes to double up the verbs, right? And you find it throughout the Old Testament. You like to have different things like... Um, to rise up and go, okay? Uh, he arose and left. 
And, and in, in some cases, it's, it's strictly idiomatic. It's clear before he leaves, he has to stand up. If, he, if he's sitting down, he's not going to leave the room. Okay? But, but it's very common. And you have it, um, he lifted his eyes and beheld. Okay? Does that ever bother you? You know, uh, is it, it's just the, the nature of the language, nature of the Hebrew language, nature of the Old Testament. You have it gads of times throughout the Old Testament. So the idea of go and, go and, go and, um, I think we can understand. So here in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 8, uh, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And, and what I like about this is we have a, a grammatical construct that's very similar to go and make disciples. Uh, you have an aorist participle from poruo or poruomai. You've got the aorist participle that precedes an imperative. The imperative is search carefully for the child. Search carefully for the child. And of course there's a go that is necessary because they're standing in Herod's you know, throne room. <laughs> you know, They're not going to search for the child in the, right where they are. So go and search for the child. You know, the going is is extraneous. The, the going is a, is a aorist participle. It, it shows activity that has to precede the action of the main verb and uh, so forth. So go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, another imperative, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. So after hearing the king, they went their way. All right. Uh, next use is chapter 9 and verse 13. So do we find, a, do we want to preach a go application there in Matthew 2, 8, where we're all going to be called by God to go out looking for babies? <laughs> okay, or uh, no. All right, we understand that. Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, see, they were all grumbling. They were grumbling about uh, the, 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 that he was eating with tax collectors and so forth context for this comes back in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. There it is, that got up and followed him. Okay? You know, if, if we just read this, he said to him, follow me, and he followed him, would would be okay with that? Yeah, I'd be fine with that. I would automatically assume that he got up and followed him. That he didn't, he was sitting in his booth and he didn't, you know, scoot his chair, you know. Yes, he got up and followed him. I'm okay with that. He said to him, follow me, so he followed him. We don't need the little helping verb in there. It's just, it's the nature of the writing style, it's the nature of the language, it's the nature of the thought process. Matthew being very um, Hebraic in, uh, in its composition. So, it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table. Again, we have all these, why do you have all these expressions? As he was doing this, as he was doing that, as they were walking here, when this was happening. It's the nature of the writing style. So it happened. And so it came to be. And so it came to pass. You know, the Hebrew, why he? Uh, and it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So it's very much consistent with, with Matthew's writing style that you're going to have an as, when, go, and, very much. But it, it's leading to the main imperative, which is make disciples. 
And so when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Then in verse 13, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He tells them to go do a Bible study in Hebrews or in uh, Hosea 6. All right, Hosea 6, 6. He says, go and learn what this means. So what's the primary imperative there? Learn. Remarkably enough, manthano, to learn, is related to mathetes, disciple, right? And so uh, the, the mathetuo, make disciples imperative, means turn them into learners, those who will manthano, those who will learn. Here he says, go and learn. So in some respects, Jesus himself is applying the Great Commission right here, is he not? <laughs> anyway commending them to go and learn. But, but obviously, with go and learn and that tandem, which one's the real imperative? The real imperative is learn, right? The go is simply secondary. The go is, is introductory. The go is meaning that, well, you know, right now we're having dinner. Right now it's not our Bible class time. Right now, and besides, you're not my disciples anyway, you're going to have to go back to your own rabbis. You have to go back to your own sources, your own study. Uh, go and learn what this means, meaning it out of here when you're on your own time. This is my dinner time right now, Jesus says. (laughs) All right. Again, the go is preparatory. It's an aorist participle. It's not an imperative. All of these that we're seeing this morning are aorist participles of poor you am I, poor you. All right, uh, chapter 11 and verse 4. John's in prison. He sends two disciples. Ask, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And... uh, Again, all of these phrases, backing up to verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, we have a a phrase that kind of sets a context and then tells you what happened. He departed from there. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and so forth. And so Jesus answered and said to them. There's more redundancy. Jesus answered and said to them, okay? Answered and said, answered and said. Okay? Same thing, like he spoke and said. And Jesus answered and said. All right. Go and report to John what you hear and see. Go and report. Eris participle for go. The imperative is report. Go and report. Obviously, the, the main imperative there is report. Okay? And uh, clearly, because... They're in the presence of Jesus, and John is back in prison. In order for them to obey that report imperative, they're going to need to go. They're going to need to go back to where John the baptizer is, okay? They can't stay here with Jesus and report. So it's necessary, but it's preparational. It's it's incidental to the main imperative. Um, Time and time and time again, we're seeing that the, the go and is simply incidental to the main imperative. The go and is incidental because it goes without saying that they're not going to do it right there and stay there the whole time. Same thing with the Great Commission. Up there on that mountain, how many disciples are they going to make on that mountain? <laughs> well, they've got to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, which tells you that the go is incidental and extraneous. All right. Uh, that's chapter 11 and verse 4. Go and report to John what you see. Chapter 17 and verse 27. 
1727. I'm glad my phone was on vibrate. That would have been embarrassing. All right. Could you even hear it out there? You could? You heard a vibration in my pocket? Okay. No. My vibrating pocket. My apologies. I just have uh, an elderly father I keep this around for just to just in case. All right. And you can tell him I said that. Um, 1727. However, okay, here's the thing about paying taxes. And uh, he asks Simon, what do you think? Who do they collect taxes from? And Peter says, well, from strangers. Well, so the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take up the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Again, go to the sea is preparatory to the main imperative. Um, you know, we're not going to build a great missionary message on this go that uh, is right there. It's preparatory to um, the imperative to throw in a hook and uh, the first fish you catch will have our tax money in its mouth. Okay, that'd be kind of fun. I've got to pay my taxes coming up. and That won't be the means I use to uh, obtain my tax money. All right, Matthew 18, 12. 18, 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? Go and search. Go and search. Uh, going is an aorist participle. It's preparatory to the main verb. The activity there is, uh, in this case, it's not imperative. It's simply indicative. That's what he's doing. He's going and he's searching. And uh, it's just understood that that's what's going to happen. Matthew twenty-one twenty-six. Oh, I'm sorry, twenty-one six. They went and did. It's kind of the follow-up, the response to go and do. They went and did. Um, he says to them, uh, "Go." Now here it is imperative. Go in verse two into the village opposite you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied there with a colt, untie her and bring them to me. So there is an imperative. Tells them to go there, and they they go there. So they went and did. They went and did. And they brought the donkey on the colt, and they're ready now for Palm Monday, the great parade entry into Jerusalem. 22.15 The Pharisees went and plotted. They went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. The went is uh, aorist participle, extraneous to the main activity. The main activity is they're plotting. And uh, just happens to be that they went off into their little hidey hole, hideout um, lair, and uh, plotted that. All right, that's 21, 22, 15, 25, 16. Went and traded. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. Went and traded. Makes sense. And then uh, 2614. One of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, 
what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And went and said, went and said. 2766, the last of these, 2766. Uh, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. This is where the Pharisees were all terrified, saying, you know, that liar said he was going to rise again on the third day. And Pilate's like, well, what do you care? He's a liar, right? (laughs) What What are you scared of? If he's a liar, no big deal. And uh, you have a guard, go and make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made. They went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So they went and secured. They went and secured the grave. The point being, and maybe it's a bit extraneous, but now we've done it. It took eight minutes to do it. Um, We go through our exercise here. We find that the the go and, the go and, or they went and, is, is idiomatic. It's, 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 it's an expression. It's a way of talking. It's like, uh, you know, fixing to, okay? Um, I'm fixing to, uh, I'm fixing to have lunch with Doug after church is over, all right? But it's no big deal. It's just an expression. It's an idiom. And uh, go in, go in, go in is, is, a, is a way of expression that's fairly common. And, uh, and it's an employee here. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We're not going to stress the go. We're not going to we're not going to camp on that as if that's the prime great commission for every believer. And if you don't, you know, go to Africa this summer, then you're you're you don't love Jesus. Okay. <laughs> the, the point is is make disciples wherever you wherever you go wherever you are. Okay. And uh, you know we are the Austin disciple makers because this is where we are, and there are other disciple makers in other places. Okay? And if he calls you to go, that's a different imperative. That's a different. That's, that's um, running with endurance the race that's set before you. All right? That's fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's, uh, we've got plenty of verses on divine guidance and plenty of verses that will tell you when it is time to uh, make an adjustment in the geographic will of God. But that's not the Great Commission imperative. Okay? The Great Commission imperative is make disciples. So point B. The disciple-maker imperative is an aorist imperative and the only imperative in this context. Because go, baptize, and teach, none of them are imperatives. Go, baptize, and teach are all participles. Okay? And only make disciples is an imperative. All right. And as uh, you write this down, I'm going to highlight one other thing here too. Um, the disciple maker imperative is an aorist imperative and the only imperative in this context. Go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Go is not, baptizing is not, teaching is not. Make disciples is. And it's the only one in this, in this context. Like I say, behold, lo, can be thought of as an imperative, and uh, maybe we ought to start doing that. Um, pay attention, though. I didn't highlight it, but the uh, aorist right there. Go ahead and underline that, because when we get to the baptizing and the teaching, we're going to detail those participles as well. All three of them are participles, but those other two are not aorist participles like the go is. Okay? They're present participles. And that's going to be significant as well. 
We'll touch on that when we get to point C and D. Or point D, actually. So again, point B, the disciple-maker imperative is an aorist imperative and the only imperative in this context. The verb is mathetuo, mathetuo, like the name Matthew. Matthew. Um, that's probably wrong. <laughs> Matthew does not come from mathetes, now that I think about it. But if it helps you think of it, then cheat and say that Matthew comes from mathetuo. Um the verb is manthano. The verb here, mathetuo, is to make a disciple. To either become a disciple, if it's indicative, or to make a disciple, if it's imperative, if it's causative, as we see here. M-A-T-H-E-T-E-U-O. Mathetuo. Number 3100 in the Strong's Concordance. Nice round even number, number 3100. With only four uses. It's not long. Not only is it only four uses, only one of them is an imperative. The other three are all indicative, just telling what's happening. In Matthew thirteen fifty two, Matthew twenty seven fifty seven, and uh, in Acts fourteen twenty one. Uh, Mathetes is disciple. Manthano is to learn. I should have given you those verbs also. I failed to, but you can look those up. And if you need help, shoot me an email, and I'll find some Strong's numbers for you. But Matthew thirteen fifty two back in this chapter with the uh, parables. If you might recall. Jesus said to them, and therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And so we have a scribe and not every scribe becomes a disciple. Now here it's not an imperative, and here no one has made him a disciple. It doesn't really say how he became a disciple. It just points out the reality of what it is. He has become a disciple. And so um, whether or not somebody disciple made him or not, or whether he disciple made himself, he became a disciple. That is, he started to learn he started to study the uh, the kingdom of heaven, and so uh, not you can imagine not every scribe did that. Uh, maybe other scribes had other things they studied, but this one, uh, there's a reality that comes with that. Chapter twenty-seven and verse fifty-seven, another use, again not imperative, but uh, indicative statement of reality. This is what has taken place. When it was evening, he dies on the cross. When it was evening, there became a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had mathetuo. He had become a disciple of Jesus. He had become a disciple of Jesus. Okay, Just indicative mood, passive voice. This is what had happened. He had become a disciple. And yet, secretly, secretly. Nobody else knew that. In fact, it's our introduction to Joseph Arimathea here in this book. Chapter 28, verse 19 is, of course, the Great Commission. How about Acts 14, 21? Acts 14, 21. We see them fulfilling the Great Commission. Barnabas and Saul in the first missionary journey. And after they had preached the gospel to that city 
and had made many disciples. So is preaching the gospel the same as making disciples? Or do those seem to be two different activities? It says, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Two different things, that's right. People confuse it and say that all i got to do is preach the gospel and I'm obeying the Great Commission. Wait a minute. You can preach the gospel and still not fulfill the Great Commission. And had made many disciples that returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. All right, because this is the key. What, what, what qualifies you to be a disciple? You've got to continue in the faith. Or the Lord said in John 8, you've got to abide in my word. So strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I think there's three activities there. Strengthening their souls, encouraging them to abide, and also teaching accurately the reality of what the angelic conflict is all about. Don't put rosy glasses on them. You put rosy glasses on them, they're going to get disillusioned. They'll stop being disciples when the tough time comes. But saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Orient them to what the conflict's all about. That gives them the depth of soil. That way they're not going to fade away when the heat comes. They're not going to peel off as rocky ground. Okay? All right. I think we can get more out of Acts 14 on our Great Commission than we can get in some of these other places. Now, aorist imperative. What's, what's an aorist imperative? What's the difference between an aorist imperative and a present imperative? Why is this not a present imperative? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Dan could probably answer. Have you learned the distinctions yet between aorist and present? Uh, a present imperative is remarkable because present tense is the continuous action tense. Um, keep on doing something, continuously do something, always do something. Um, but the aorist imperative is, is remarkable because it's punctiliar. It's point of action. But it may be iterative. It may be repeated or not, okay, but as it happens, when it happens, when those occasions arise, then make a disciple. I love the fact that an aorist imperative means I may not do it today, I may not do it tomorrow, but when, it, when, when an occasion arises, then habitually on those occasions, I am under a, a, a disciple-making imperative, all right? It's an aorist imperative, not a... Uh, not a present imperative. I think that's huge. Okay? Um, as opposed to other present imperatives that we have, other, other things I'm supposed to do when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit or I'm abiding in Christ or I'm other things that I should be doing continuously, I should continuously be seeking uh, first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. There's other things I should be doing as a present imperative continuously, all day, every day, for the rest of my existence here on earth. But the disciple-maker imperative is an aorist imperative. All right? And so it's not continuous action. It's not nonstop. If, if for example, <clears throat> let me just ask. Um, I'll pick on Doug because he's my, he's my deacon that's here this morning. Um, you're a disciple. Okay? You are a disciple. So, Am I commanded to make you a disciple? 
if you already are a disciple? Is that what the, the disciple maker imperative is telling me to do? Okay. Does discipleship does discipleship continue to remain in force after they're already a disciple? Okay. And here's the example because Dan's sitting right here too. Dan was an unbeliever when he first visited this church. And came to the Lord, got saved, didn't stop there, was made a disciple. Okay? He's a disciple to this day. He is a disciple right here, right now. All right? Are you still under the imperative to keep on making him a disciple? When does that stop? When does he stop being the object of your making him a disciple? Because at a certain point now, you're no longer the one baptizing him and teaching him because now he's a fellow disciple along with you in this flock, see, under this teaching ministry. All right, so when it comes to um, our imperatives in the church, once we are a flock, once we are disciples, those whom we have made disciples enter into a different aspect because now they're a part of the one another imperatives. The one another imperatives to build up one another, edify one another. Okay? And edification is not discipleship. Edification follows discipleship. You see what I'm saying? No man can lay a foundation other than that is laid in Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. You're leading to the Lord. You're getting them grounded. But then it's no longer a discipleship imperative when we are, when we are edifying one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, operating within the bounds of a local church. That's huge. I think that's, that's a massive distinction to be found. Primarily because I think there's a tremendous amount of believers out there that are trying to make disciples as an ongoing operation of the church age. They have entire discipleship focus. They, um, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're dividing the flock is what they're doing. They're breaking down into cell groups. They're breaking down into small groups. And they're telling, you know, you've got to disciple this person, this person, this person. They're assigning people for you to disciple. And they're already disciples. They should be engaged in the reciprocal building up, edification of one another. And that has to be done as a body in totality. Not breaking down into age groups or marital status or other common interests. Okay? Anyway, I believe that the Great Commission is directed towards non-disciples. The targets of of the Great Commission are non-disciples. Either unbelievers that need the gospel or non-discipling believers that need to be placed under teaching, brought into a flock, placed into a place where they can operate in the one another imperatives. And once you place them there, you strengthen them, you encourage them, and, and so forth, but once they're there, You've made the disciple. It's like when you've accomplished the purpose of church discipline. You don't just keep on disciplining and keep on disciplining. When the, when the church discipline has been effective, the repentance has been provoked, then you stop the church discipline. They're, they're once again in a place where they can operate in the, the reciprocal uh, edification imperatives of the church. At a certain point, you stop making disciples because they are disciples. All right. So, um, there you have it. 
And this is, uh, you know, it's again, it's, it's an outreach opportunity. It's a blessing for us. We, uh, we have opportunities sometimes with neighbors, with friends, with folks that they, they ask, well, how do you know so much about the Bible? Where are you getting all this? Or where do you go to church? And, you know, my, my, my church doesn't teach all that, okay? They're finding, uh, they, they got contacts and friends with these BSF groups, Bible study fellowship groups and whatever. And the reason why those groups thrive is because they're not getting the, the teaching in their own churches. And so they're going to these, you know, Monday night BSF things, or they're going to whatever. They've got these neighborhood Bible studies and things. Why? Why do they go to these things? Because they're not getting fed in their church. And then they find out, well, where are you getting that? Where are you getting that? Where are you getting that? And you've got an opportunity to say, you know what? Come with me. Come with me. Yeah. Because I believe that's a prime target audience, the people that are not disciples, but they want to be. They want to be disciples. They want to be abiding in the Word of God. See? But abiding in the Word of God means in this stewardship, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates to the local churches. Hey, you've got to be operating in a flock. All right, so not, not against small groups, not against ladies' studies, not against BSF, not against, not against any of that. But none of that is a lampstand with a shepherd. Okay? And, and, and th- I think that's prime hunting grounds for folks that want to be disciples. To say, you want to come alongside? Come alongside. Join me where I'm getting fed. Okay. Then you'll be uh, accused of being a sheep stealer. (laughs) We're not trying to steal sheep. We're not trying to yank them out of whatever whatever church they are. But if Jesus Christ has taken them out of there because they're being provoked, they're they're, they're starving, well, we're not stealing sheep. They're the Lord's sheep anyway. And he allots them to the charge of where they need to be. Allotting to the charge. All right. Point C. The disciple-maker imperative is a global mission to all the nations. The disciple-maker imperative is a global mission to all the nations. Now, this is the one aspect, I think, that does form a basis for linking Matthew 28 with, with Luke 24. However, that one link and similarity does not mean that we have to identify these two episodes. Like I say, one's on a Galilee mountain, the other's in, in, in uh, Jerusalem. There are other distinctions as well. Too many differences means we have to separate the two chapters. The one similarity doesn't mean we identify them, but this is the one similarity. The fact that it does uh, declare this to be a global mission. Point C, the disciple-maker imperative is a global mission to all the nations. 2819. Thank you. That is a typo. 2819. 2829 is rather ridiculous. Yeah, I just, that was on purpose. Yeah, I was. Uh, all right, point C, 2819. Thank you. I will fix that. I either need to fix my typo or I need to uh, write nine more verses to the end of. Matthew 28, and I'm not uh, qualified to write nine more verses at the end of Matthew 28. Wouldn't presume. Go therefore and make disciples of whom? Of all the nations, of all the Gentiles, or all the nations. I think in this context it's best to render it as nations, particularly in the hindsight of having church age mystery doctrine revealed, whereby we understand that 
um, the body of Christ is neither Jew nor Gentile, but a new creation, uh, a heavenly people that are called out, the called out ones from all the nations, including the Jewish nation, by the way. And so this is not a, uh, an imperative of Jewish people to go make Gentile disciples. This is an imperative to make disciples of all the nations regardless, even then including the Jewish nation, that uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right? We're not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All the nations then, if they're unsaved, we give them the gospel. And once they are saved, we ground them in the truth. We, te- we baptize and teach. We baptize and teach. And, and we're going to describe what we teach. Okay, We don't teach just anything. There's a content for what must be taught in order to <clears throat> cause that person to become a disciple. And we'll get to that content here shortly. Um, but here we have it, all the nations. And so we have it. Uh, we want to make Texas disciples. We want to make American disciples. We want to make Ukrainian disciples, Filipino disciples. All right? And here, the good news is, is that there already are disciple makers in those places. Okay? And if we can go to the Philippines and train Filipino pastors and Filipino evangelists and Filipino you name it, there's 11 gifts, train the Filipinos to make to be disciple makers, train the Ukrainians to be disciple makers, then the best fulfillment of the Great Commission is, is going to happen this way. And that's why I, I love what Brett Nasworth is doing in his new mission organization called Disciple Makers Multiplied. And uh, training disciples in how to be disciple makers so that we can train other disciples in how to be disciple makers and then we don't have to stay in a country for 40 years as a missionary because we've gone there for a short time and we've trained the native disciples to be disciple makers there. And uh, that's the, uh, the thinking behind this. Anyway, keep that in prayer. We're going to see if we can bring uh, a display here and uh, do a, a weekend conference or do a week conference there. Bob is going to Ukraine to do one in March. Uh, March and April, that he's going over there to, to serve with disciple makers, multiplied, and uh, participate with that. I think it's a, it's a great approach. I think it's a wonderful approach um, as far as that goes. All right. Now let's uh, peek over to Luke 24, and I'll show you how this is a similarity between the Great Commission and the Great Something Else that I have titled Luke 24. Luke twenty four forty seven. <clears throat> Interesting, we have a context here, and uh, we have no clue that it's anywhere other than Jerusalem. Following the uh, uh, context for thirty six through forty three. They're in the upper room in Jerusalem. He popped in there, said, peace be with you. He ate some fish with them. This is uh, on the night uh, of his resurrection. This is uh, uh, Resurrection Sunday here still, that that particular evening. And um, then verse 44, Now he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. 
That's huge. And we'll detail that when we get to main point four. Um, but there's nothing in between verse 33 and 34 that tells us that the geography has changed. I think the now is, a, is an indicator that time has gone by. Um, he took it and ate it before them. That kind of closes the event. And then now he said to them, the language there, I believe, shows that time has gone by. It's not the same night, but we don't have any indication that there's a change of setting. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That's a later occasion. That's a later event. In fact, it's a, it's a retrospective message. It's a retrospective message. It would be like if, if Ralph Braun was to return down here and he say, and he would introduce a topic and say, now, while I was still pastor here, I taught um, Philippians. I remember Philippians was the book he was teaching when I first visited in, uh, in May of 1990. Yeah, Wednesday night, May 9th, 1990. And uh, uh, Ralph was teaching Philippians, all right? And so he could come today, because he's no longer with us, he could, he could return and say, now, while I was with you, this is what I said. And he can give a, an overview, or he could give a complete review, a, a complete recap. He could even give a deeper uh, message building on what he had said, uh, throwing in additional understandings and realities based on other things. And that's what we have here. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Isn't that wonderful? We're going to detail that next week. Um, but this is, uh, this is uh, where he's approaching this. And, uh, and then he says to them, thus it is written. And he's going to combine what is written with their new capacity to understand moving forward. All right. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead of the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins all right, would be proclaimed. Would be proclaimed. Notice it's an anticipation in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. So Again, it's a global imperative. It's a global message, a global mission, because Matthew 28 mentions all the nations, Luke 24 mentions all the nations, because in both contexts they mention all the nations. Um, A.T. Robertson decided in his Harmony of the Gospels to just lump these paragraphs together and call it the same event, and I think it's unfortunate. Yes, it's a similarity because it it is the scope is all the nations. But who's to say that Jesus couldn't have given an all-the-nations message more than once? I think he clearly did give an all-the-nations message more than once. And he gave an all-the-nations message in the Great Commission message on the mountaintop in Galilee. He gave an all-the-nations message in this episode back in Jerusalem on a later date. I think the, the, the night before his ascension, which we see here. Um, in verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, and blessed them. So I think this was his final testament, his final Bible class, before he led them out as far as Bethany and then was ascended. The, uh, the message in verses 44 through 49. So we're going to cover that under main point four. 
And it's not the Great Commission. I've, I've, I've given it a new title. And uh, you have to wait until next week to learn what that new title is. All right? But Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. Luke 24 is the Great... All right. The disciple-maker imperative is a global mission to all the nations. Now, again, we want to place this in its proper context. Where is this commission going to be applied? Where is this commission going to be? Uh, Who is responsible for this? Uh, Who is responsible for creating the Texas disciples? Who is responsible for creating the Ukrainian disciples? Who is responsible for, if we go to Zambia this summer... Who is responsible for making Zambian disciples? All right. Does God expect you to travel to all 191 countries in your lifetime? Who goes and does this? I'm going to talk about this. What is the, what is the expectation as we operate within local churches? See, what is our jurisdiction here in this lampstand? That is, Austin Bible Church planted on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. All right. <clears throat> Things to consider. Two activities now, point D. Two activities define the disciple-maker imperative. And going is not one of them. Going is incidental. But the other two participles are definitive. You understand what I mean by definitive? They define the process. They define the activity. And it's a reason why they're not aorist participles, they are present participles. So point D, two activities define the disciple-maker imperative, baptizing them and teaching them. Baptizing them and teaching them. So point one, baptizing them. Point two, teaching them. And that's a lot to write down, I know. But you got two minutes left. We're not in a hurry. <laughs> okay. Two activities define the disciple-maker imperative. Baptizing them and teaching them. Now, baptizo is a participle, not an imperative. I didn't even record the strongest number for you. But we understand baptizo and uh, didasco, to teach. Baptizing them and teaching them. Baptizing them and teaching them. Two steps. These are not aorist imperatives. These are present imperatives. I'm sorry, back up. They're not aorist participles. Go was an aorist participle. All right, And an aorist participle precedes the action of the main verb, the main verb being the imperative to make disciples. So go precedes the imperative to make disciples. Present participles coincide with the activity of the main verb. They describe the attendant circumstances or the attendant activity of the main verb. They even define the main verb. They define the main verb. They provide for you the the definition or the substance of what it means to do the main verb. So I would say right now I am teaching the life of Christ class 
illustrating certain verbal details. I am teaching, illustrating certain verbal details. You see how the one goes with the other. They are, they are simultaneous. They overlap, in other words. So baptizing them, teaching them, gives us the definition for what it means to make disciples. Okay? It doesn't, uh, it's not, it doesn't mean get them to sign a, a visitor card, get them to sign a membership card, get them to sign a, uh, a, a, a covenant of fellowship contract. <laughs> All right. I'm out of time. This is where we'll pick up next, next uh, week. Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll still be here next week. And, uh, and we'll pick it up here. Somebody was asking uh, that covenant of fellowship, uh, the, the 12 points in the covenant of fellowship, um, will they be required to, to sign that, to sign that form? Uh, because they actually went back to the church where we obtained that from and found out that it, to be a member of that church, they hand you a, a single page sheet that has that covenant and you sign it. Well, we're not going to make... We're not, we're not doing that. That's right. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to include the covenant of fellowship. Even better, um, we've provided scripture basis for every one of those 12 points. All right. And uh, it will be featured, it will be incorporated into the new revised constitution, but there's nothing to sign. We're not going to force a, a legal signature, some kind of a binding contract that will then uh, bring out <laughs> at some point. All right. Baptizing and teaching, we will uh, pick up on this next week, Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. Thank you for the imperative that we are under and the blessings that all of us share, Father, in this, in this regard. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.